Hello. Hi. Uh, welcome to season two of Hide or Practice. have litigator Luke Nikas here with us, who is a partner with Quinn Emanuel or Garton Sullivan, the largest litigation firm in the world. And he handles all of the art stuff that you can imagine, the things that I know about and things that like we don't even know about, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so do you mind telling us a little bit about like, how did you even, when you started your law career, did you immediately think you wanted to get into arts or how did that come about? Sure. So the last thing I ever thought a lawyer could do was litigate about art. There was no <laughs> art law class when I went to law school, no case about art that I read in any of my classes. I thought I was destined to a world of mergers and acquisitions and securities litigation and stuff that I, I do find interesting and still do, but art litigation was nowhere nowhere on the scene in law school. So it was about five years into my career when I had my first art case. And I thought to myself, this is good. This is interesting. The, the culture, the history, the art itself, you know, you've got the creative side, the economics of it, the market, and then you, you're layering on to that really interesting background some legal dispute. So it was, it was an amazing, uh, amazing first case, and it's all gone well from there. That's amazing. Oh, I was just gonna say, what was the, what was the first case about? You don't have to like give us the details of like who it was, but like what was it, was it like a copyright thing? Did somebody owe someone money? Like how did that, what was the, what was the angle? So the, the very first case was a case for the Andy Warhol Foundation. And a couple of people, and then it expanded, accused the Warhol Foundation of setting up an authentication board as a separate entity and accused them of conspiring with the authentication board to intentionally deny the authenticity of real Warhols on the theory that it would reduce the number of actual Warhols out in the world and increase the value of their own holdings. It was complete nonsense. It was completely false. And we won that case. Uh, the guy gave up, realized he had no case, admitted on the record that he had no evidence, never found any evidence. And then there was another guy who followed him who basically alleged the same thing and defeated that case, got that dismissed by a court. And from there, you know, expanded to you know, fraud cases, racketeering cases, uh, ownership cases, stolen, tracking down stolen paintings. So uh, that that was the first one for the Warhol Foundation. So exciting. I love the drama. This is like, I, I'm not, <laughs> like Nancy Drew. We're like nothing like Nancy Drew yeah, here. I know. Um, so I'm curious. So just to give us like a little bit of a background, because I find it so interesting that you're saying that when you went to law school, that there was no art, whatever, anything. When was this? So I was in law school in the sort of mid-2000s. So I graduated 2006. And 
from so there. recent and there was still no art whatsoever like it's not like in in the 1500s because you know like that's a good comparison amazing for your age though if it was the 1500s <laughs> the skincare regime afterwards would get you an influencer out of this no when, when you think about it you think about what gives a law school a reason to teach a class usually it's a lot of litigation that has created a lot of judicial opinions that they can stick in a textbook and then have the students read about this area of law and think about it. And it actually could be a place within the legal world where they could have a career, right? So you look at like securities law, there's litigation all the time about securities fraud, about insider trading. You can make a big textbook out of these cases. So back in 2006, when I graduated, there wasn't a lot of art litigation. There was some, it happened. But what ended up happening is the art market multiplied in value. You know, if you look at like Jackson Pollock, you look at an art index from Jackson Pollock from like 2000 to 2006, there's like a 400% increase in the prices. Exactly. And so when the value of the art multiplies, the disputes over it become that much more important to the people involved. People who in 2000, you know, wouldn't pay, you know, a few million dollars to litigate a case over a few million dollar painting, now will pay a few million dollars to litigate a case over a 50 million dollar painting or a 20 million dollar painting. So the value of the litigation makes it worthwhile to pursue. And it's the same thing if it's, you know, spending 500 over a $2 million painting where previously the painting would be worth, you know, $600,000. It's all about whether someone's going to litigate. And so what you've seen is a whole lot more litigation in the arts. You've seen people suing each other over, you know, images, whether it's copyright, trademark. You've seen people suing over uh, forgeries. You've seen forgeries at a high scale that have high value. And, and so all of a sudden everyone was interested in it. It was happening, it was in the headlines, and then it ends up in a law school course. Interesting. So that's, yeah, because I guess before recently when the contemporary market especially really skyrocketed, the people that we're dealing with in art litigation would probably be like museums, foundations of like major fraud for like major artists, or, you know, I think about like the Nazi repatriation of like those kinds of art situation, but is that litigation? It is. So Nazi looted art situations definitely were, were subjects of litigation. Mm -hmm. Some forgery litigation, but not a ton. Not a ton. Uh, and there was some litigation against experts you know, here and there, like appraisers or, you know, I call them authenticators. It's not, you know, they, they would not appreciate that, but scholars, connoisseurs, um, who are authenticating works or giving their opinion about whether it was right or not. You know, it's all code. Uh, so, so some of these experts were sued for giving an opinion that a work was real when it wasn't or vice versa. Appraisers who said it was worth X when someone thought it should be worth a lot more. But that was the kind of litigation you saw. Now it's, it's explosive. Do you think that, especially I think about like copyright and trademark, because I remember not that long ago, I was working with an artist who 
you know, things that you wouldn't have seen normally because of, without the internet and social media of like seeing like say an artwork in an advertisement that like I think about the the street artist in like the Mercedes advertisement. Uh, he was at, someone had used a painting of his in an advertisement for like a couch or something in Architectural Digest, which was not a magazine he would have normally gotten, but someone saw it easily to send a picture, get that whole thing. Do you think that the, the internet kind of exploding, like that kind of raises more access to litigation or like litigatable, is that a word? Should I make that up a word? It, litigatable? It, you just did. Yes, um, litigatable. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, just so, keep saying it. Just keep saying it until it's real. That's how that works. Um, it, like to have like a a case that you could make because you're seeing it now that in a way that you probably wouldn't have thirty even thirty years ago. It, absolutely, there's art litigation about the physical works of art. You know, forgery litigation, ownership litigation. There's also litigation about the image, completely separate and apart. And that's what you're talking about. Social media, the, the internet generally has made imagery just, it's it saturated the world with images of art. And there's a sort of tradable kind of culture that makes it litigatable, where ultimately you've got people who look at the love image that Robert Indiana made and say, this would look great on a pillow or a company that says, that's an interesting Maryland, let me put that in my advertising. And so you've got use that's expanded dramatically because that's the way people trade in images. And you also have, as you're saying, sort of the visibility of it. So I represented the Andy Warhol Foundation, still am, in a case over an image of Prince, the music, you know, the, the musician, that was taken by a photographer back in the early 80s. In 84, Vanity Fair took that image and gave it to Warhol. Warhol made a series of 16 paintings using the image of prints, like classic celebrity portraits. And one of those went into the Vanity Fair magazine, November 1984, accompanying an article called uh, Purple Fame, you know, fitting, right? Fast forward from 1984 to a few years ago, and this photographer said she was on the internet and she saw that Warhol painting for the first time and said, wait a second, that's a painting based off of my photograph. And she said she didn't even know about it. And if there was no internet, if, Van if Prince didn't die and Vanity Fair didn't stick its commemorative edition or link to it, or online, she might never have seen it. And so it's definitely becoming, use is more visible than it used to be. And the way people are using images has changed. Okay, I have to stop here. Because I am, yes, because I'm wildly aware of the fact that I am so out of my depth here, that um, for any of our listeners, if you're like me, who literally don't really understand what's happening, um, what does litigation actually mean? Can we like <laughs> just make sure? <laughs> I don't. I hope I'm not the only person. Man, I feel dumb. <laughs> but in case other people are on the same train as me, what does litigation mean, and what does art litigation mean? Sure. So. Art litigation is any kind of lawsuit litigation, I'll tell you that in a minute, that involves art. 
whether it's a painting gets stolen, whether it's someone makes a forgery and sells it to somebody else unsuspecting, whether it's an image of a Warhol painting that someone sticks in an advertisement, and then the person who uh, puts in the advertisement doesn't pay the licensing fees, doesn't get the permission from the owner of the image. So it's any kind of litigation relating to art. Now, what's litigation? So litigation, you know, basic litigation is one person has some kind of rights and somehow somebody else violated those rights. When it comes to art, and then you, you file a complaint, you explain what the rights what you have are, you explain how they were violated, and it goes in front of a judge. And then ultimately, if there's a jury, right, you go in front of a jury, and the court system decides who's right and who's wrong. Well, litigation is basically fighting. That's right. It's arguing. It's so it's, a, it's an important person. word I should know then. Like, you know, if, if I'm reading a contract moving forward as an artist, like litigation, this is probably a good word to know in my vocabulary. It, it's important to know when you're talking about contracts, it's important to know what kind of disputes you're more likely going to run into in whatever relationship you're creating and then figure out based on the kinds of disputes that are likely to come up, what kind of contract provisions you should have to protect you. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> are, are, you, are you suggesting that we can have another one? Thanks. That, 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 that's a whole separate. Practice or litigate. I'm into it. Um, <laughs> we have like our spinoff. It's like amazing. Um, just, just because it's very current now about like use of images, what kind of, because I think that people don't understand that when you make, when you create an image and if you, it's yours, that there are certain rights that come along with that. Like the same way that you can't just take a Warhol Maryland and stick it in your advertisement because then you're, if I was selling a chair and I had the Maryland over it and we hadn't discussed the rights, I hadn't called you up and been like, I'd like to discuss licensing fees. Um, I'm benefiting off of the Warhol, like Andy, Andy, you know, me and Andy, off Andy's work um, and his images that he's created. So the same way that, you know, when you create a piece of work, there are rights that go along with that, that people can't just take your images. And the same way as people, when, you, when you're taking it, especially with collage and multimedia and digital works, you can't just take someone's photograph or you know, a piece and just like make it and pretend like it's yours, right? So th these are really, really important and intricate questions that, that go from the basic to the really complicated. Sorry. So, <laughs> that was like five questions. <laughs> I know. But the short story is, if you make something, if you create an image, if you take a photograph, if you paint a painting, what you've created, assuming it's original, what you've created is yours. You put in the energy, the effort, the creativity, and you created something. You have rights in that. It's protected under the copyright laws. If you sell that painting, you still have the rights, unless you give them away in the contract, you still have the rights to the image. I can hang a painting on my wall. Doesn't mean I can take a picture of it and stick it on a pillow or in an advertisement. I own the physical painting. I don't own the actual image of it. 
I own the physical Marilyn. I don't own the image of Marilyn. The person who created it still does. So for example, Andy Warhol created a Liz Taylor portrait. He created a Marilyn portrait. He sold those. Someone hangs those paintings on their wall. The Warhol Foundation still owns the copyright to the image. So if you wanted to go create a magazine, if you wanted to do an advertisement, even though you have the Maryland hanging on your wall, you can't stick it in the, the magazine. That's the Warhol Foundation. Same is true today, living artist. And so ultimately you gotta take steps to protect that. But then you've got other artists in the world building on what came before, right? So you're thinking about doing a painting. Who's your inspiration? What's, what are you inspired by? Just like with literature, artists build on the people who came before them and the people that are around them. And that's a good thing. We want society to, be, society to be connected in that way. And so when you're creating, if you're using someone else's image, then it becomes a question, how much of it are you using? And how are you using it? And are you ultimately taking from somebody else what's not yours to take? And that's where you get into collage and you get into appropriation art. So Richard Warhol, Prince. Richard Prince. That and, was literally what Andy I was Warhol, thinking. Andy Warhol. When, when Andy took the photograph of flowers or of uh, Prince or of Marilyn or of any number of different people that he portrayed in his celebrity portraits, he was, he was taking, with the exception of the photographs he himself took, he was taking someone else's work. But then what was he doing with it? Was he just copying it? If you looked at the Warhol, would you say no different from the photograph? Ultimately, what he was doing is he was taking that photograph. He had a, his own unique artistic process and he transformed the image. He transformed the meaning of it, the message of it, the aesthetic of it. If you look at the underlying photograph and then you look at the Warhol, it says something different to you. It has a different meaning, different message. It's in a completely different economic market. It's not a substitute. And so we, we want to encourage people to build on the, the creativity that came before without stealing it. Because that's sort of how our society works. That's how the arts work generally. And so it's a really, it's a spectrum and it's a tough question. So how do I safeguard my practice then? If I'm going to make something, I'm going to put it on Instagram, which is like accessible to everyone basically who has the internet how do i safeguard what i've made can, can i okay maybe i should rephrase this can i safeguard my practice is it possible so you, you can certainly take steps to make it clear that it's not okay you can put a copyright symbol for example uh you can say you know all rights reserved you know, no no use permitted uh, without contacting, getting approval of the artist. You can say those things. You don't need to legally, but it does send a message that you do protect your intellectual property. And then ultimately, the only real way to police it is to police it. And the only way to stop people is to file litigation or send a cease and desist. But you should do it, uh, I think, be mindful of the real impact. So some use is really damaging. Sometimes people take your image and they're a real substitute. People will buy 
what you're making, but instead they don't because someone else is making it. So you've got to, or else you'll, you'll be doing whack-a-mole. You've got to focus on what matters and what doesn't and, and reach out to the people who are really impacting, you think, your market, and let the, the people who aren't just continue to do it uh, because you spend your whole day going after infringers. That's expensive business. That's expensive business. Time is money. Time is money. So in terms of safeguarding, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, it's probably slightly different between me as an artist versus Alexa's as a dealer curator. Is, is that true? Oh my God, I feel like I'm so ignorant. I'm just asking super dumb questions. Here. No, but these are basic. We have to, like, if you don't know, I mean, it's the same thing. And I'm only saying this just for everybody to like listen because in every single avenue, there's so much to know. And if you don't know, you have to get that foundation because people still are coming at us with our questions. And that's why we're filling in the foundation. And like, Luke, when you like got into this, there wasn't much and like you literally are the foundation actually and like you're like building all of these steps stuff and these rules so it's really good to ask the basic questions because otherwise we can't can't expand our knowledge guys which is just the goal sorry keep going i agree so you've got to think about what it is you're creating and what it is you need to protect and what your goals are so if you're an artist you want to make sure that you've got the right people representing you in the economic market, in the art market, because you, you need to ensure that your pricing is done appropriately. It doesn't go up too quickly. You're putting works in the homes of the right kind of collectors who will support you and support your work. And ultimately, hopefully in the right institutions so that you can get the recognition that's necessary. You need someone on the dealer side that comes up with a plan and is representing you properly. When, so that's the sort of economic side of the art market. When you're thinking about protecting the actual work itself, so the legal side, which obviously connects to the economic side, but when you're thinking completely separately, what do I do to protect myself? You look at where am I using, where, am I, where, where are my works being exhibited? Where are my images being seen? What makes my work attractive to people? And ultimately, where are my risks on all fronts? And then you look at it and say, all right, now I know where my works are out in the world. I know where my risks are, who might be using my images, who might be stealing my images, who might be appropriating them. And then you can figure out what makes sense in terms of going after people or not. So if one person does something on Instagram and it's not going to impact the brand you've been building, it's not going to impact your collectors, it's not going to sort of desecrate the image, most of the world won't have a clue, you might send a cease and desist if you think it's you know, somewhat damaging, or you might not because if it's not damaging, then more often than not, these cease and desist letters get posted back on Instagram. And that can be a story about how some difficult artist doesn't want you know, some, some person using the image in a way that's in no way affecting you financially or in terms of the brand or message that you're trying to communicate to the world. And so you've gotta be careful about you know, 
the, the boomerang effect. But the bottom line is you need to think about everywhere you are in the world, every place you touch the world are your touch points. You know, your, your collectors, your dealers, your museums, your Instagram, where your images are, and then figure out what is going right in those different touch points, what is going wrong, what could go wrong, and how do I put together a plan to make the things that are going right continue to go right and protect against all my risks in those areas. So if you say, I'm on Instagram, I post my image all, images all over Instagram, the first thing I'm gonna tell you is, that's good on the branding side and the exposure side people are seeing what you're doing but then who are your followers how are people using your images on instagram are they reposting them or are they converting them to product what 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 is the interaction of the, of your followers with you and how's that affecting your brand and you just think about the sort of communities you're in your works are in whether it's an Instagram community or a museum community, and you can pretty quickly figure out with someone, what's my best strategy? Um, Should I be in that community? This is a really good argument for uh, in keeping your admin straight and good communication with all of the people that you're involved in, because a lot of artists, I mean, even when they talk to me about what they want, they're just like, I just want someone to take care of it. And it's like, that's where you can really get into trouble because you just let someone take care of it. And before you know it, 15 pieces have been sold. You've been paid for five. This one got stuck on a t-shirt and you're not getting paid. So you really do need to keep, it's, it's not fun sometimes. I get it. I mean, it's fun for me because I'm a nerd, but it's not always like super fun. So yeah, that's why really you're important. keep you're taking notes. You're taking notes. I'm hard <laughs> nodding. <laughs> I'm like literally taking notes. I know. Um, I do have a question though. Because uh, do you have to be a lawyer to send a cease and desist? No, you, you can you can say, you know, I, I'm the artist. These are my works. Yeah, these are my images. I I own the the copyrights and. You know, this use and here it is and here's what it happened and here's the evidence of it you know, violates my rights stop you obviously can't sue them but right. you can certainly tell someone to, to stop doing what they're doing I, I would always advise someone to find a lawyer find someone who can do those kinds of letters you know as inexpensively as possible uh, maybe draft a template and then every time you want to use it, you go back to the lawyer and ask for some advice because you're practicing law on your own is, is not a good thing. Uh, and you're not really practicing if you're telling someone to stop violating your rights. But at the same time, you want to make sure you're doing it in the right way and you've got support for you, you know, for your position. Uh, so, so that's certainly important. But you know, this, this is something that you, you need a good advisor, dealer to help you with overall in terms of managing your brand and your story people buy art not just because it's it's beautiful or because the art is interesting or because it tells some message like the artist is always bound up in the work itself you know when when i look at art for example i don't just say you know is this a nice work i'd like hanging on my wall you know i say what is the meaning behind it what is the message behind it historically, where does it fit in? I mean, maybe it's a contemporary work, but historically in the scheme of things over the last you know, 100 years, where does this work fit? 
is it communicating with some other era of art, some other genre of art? Who is this artist? What was he or she doing? Why was he or she creating this work and not some other one? And I want to understand you know, the, the work itself and context and the texture of it. And I think a lot of people who, you know, who buy art think in maybe not that exact way, but think about art in a more textured way. And if you're not managing your brand correctly, your message correctly, and if you think the only thing you're doing is creating like nice looking images, then you know, I, I think that ultimately you're not gonna be as successful as you could be. Okay, so as an artist, do I naturally, as naturally, because you know that's exactly how this works, um, when I make something, do I have to file copyright to protect what I've made? Like, how does, how does that work? Not in the United States. <coughs> you don't. Uh, not in the United States. You, you, need to, uh, you need to police it, obviously, if you want to enforce your rights. But you don't need to take any steps whatsoever now uh, to actually protect yourself. So, for example, you make a painting, you sell the painting, you put the image all over the place, someone infringes the image. And you've done absolutely nothing, no copyright symbol, no all rights reserved. You've done absolutely nothing to protect yourself. What have you lost? Well, you still have the copyright. You can't sue the person until you register the copyright with the copyright office, the US Copyright Office. But once you do, you can then sue them. So but you, you could file your copyright with the copyright office after you've made, say I made a piece five years ago, I see someone's using it on a t-shirt, I could file it that day, five That's years right. later, and I could, but I have like a photo of me making it in 2015. It's like, look, I, this is my copyright since 2015, and that would be valid. Well, it, it would be, there. you would still have the right to the painting, the image of, of the work that you created. You could register, you know, that the day you see the infringement, say five years after you made it, and then you could file a lawsuit as soon as the registration comes in. You can't get certain kinds of damages for the infringement if it were registered already. So if you have a registered copyright and then someone infringes it, you can get certain kinds of damages under the copyright law that you can't get if you haven't registered already because you haven't basically put the world on notice of the registration. But once you register, you can still sue the person and make them stop and ultimately uh, end the infringement. So you don't lose any rights to file a lawsuit. You don't lose the right in the image itself by waiting. You just make the lawsuit not as lucrative as if you had a registration already. The, the, the point is, you need to look at it from an economic standpoint. Registering a copyright, you know, costs some money. You, know, it's, you, you gotta pay a lawyer, you gotta file the application, uh, you gotta pay the registration fee, you know, maybe it costs $1,000, maybe it costs less. Uh, if you've got a work where the image is gonna be worth you know, hundreds of thousands or millions, you know, obviously it's an easy choice. You, know, you register to protect yourself right away. If you know that that's not gonna be you know, that's not going to be the market for this work. And you make 50 works. You don't want to go around spending, you know, 50,000, 25,000 a year. You might not register anything at all unless there's some good reason to register one particular work. 
and then you just take it as it comes and register when someone infringes. That's fair. That's like actually very reasonable yeah. for the US law to be so accommodating. It, it changed actually uh, in 1989 when we joined the Berne Convention. So there's an international treaty that protected artists' rights across international boundaries. And the United States was not a member. When we joined this international treaty, Berne Convention, when we joined this law, this international law, we had to improve in the United States the protections under our own laws, or else we couldn't become a signatory country. One of the things that we did when we joined was we eliminated the requirement under US law to have to register a copyright before you actually, not only before you filed, but before you'd lose protection. So before 1989, if you publish a work, if you tried to sell it, if you published the actual image and you didn't register the copyright and a period of time pass, you'd actually lose the rights. Uh -huh. Even if today you wouldn't have lost them, you would have them. And so in 1989, we eliminated that. And so for all the works created after 1989, you don't need to register. You still have the rights. But if, you were, if you're dealing with a work that was created before 1989, it's the earlier rules. Earlier rules. Good to know. So some works pre-89 that'd be protected today, not protected. Some works pre-89, either because they were never published to the world or because there's a copyright symbol put next to it. You took a, a very specific step to protect it, protected still. Interesting. Interesting. So what's the difference between copyright and intellectual property? Intellectual property is... Layman it, terms, like dumb, water it, water it down, please. <laughs> <laughs> Not very smart here. So, so, so there's real property, which is... You know, the land that you are standing on, it's real, it's tangible. And then there's, you know, intellectual property. There are other properties too, but intellectual property. It's not the real tangible land you stand on. It is a right that you have in the creation you've made. In my right? brain, okay. So it's, it is, you know, copyright, trademark. It's the rights in an image, for example, the rights in a design the rights in a, in a, in a brand. Yeah, so you've got patent, a trademark, copyright. And so intellectual property is just a description of a kind of property that's different from, for example, real property, which you stand on. Within intellectual property, then you have different areas. Copyright, for example, protects sort of the rights in the image itself, or if it's art or the rights in the language you chose to communicate the specific ideas or story. You've got trademark, which is in essence, property in a brand that you've built up. You know, it's the McDonald's M, uh, it's the arch. It's, you've built up a brand, a goodwill in a certain image and the use of that image, that brand in the marketplace creates a right that you can register. And then there's patents, 
you know, like designs of products, for example. And so these are just categories that fall under a general category of intellectual property. All copyrights are intellectual property, but not all intellectual property are copyrights. That's absolutely right. Yes. Okay, note ticker. <laughs> well, not everyone here has a PhD, Erica. Um, well, it I'm doesn't matter because I still, I still, I'm just like, hmm, what can I draw on when I watch The Good Wife that <laughs> makes sense here? Nothing. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if I have a PhD. It's like so irrelevant at this point. <laughs> like so dumb. I'm just like, okay. It's, okay. Thank you for breaking all of that down though because I think there is a lot of confusion about what is what. What have you read, seen, heard this week that has been interesting to you? I've been reading a lot about New York City. So that's where I live. And the 70s and 80s of New York with the sort of influx of crime and social disruption. A few months ago, and then I've continued, I started reading again about New York City news, what's going on in the city, what's happening in the city. And the, the reading has brought me down the rabbit hole from sort of thinking about proper sort of way to treat homeless people, you know, where should they live, uh, what kind of uh, mental health treatment do they need, how are we delivering to our homeless, um, are we delivering to our homeless, thinking about sort of the economy and how it's really impacted sort of crime on the city streets, thinking about sort of economy broader than, you know, the stock market, thinking about restaurants, for example, thinking about, you know, waitstaff, thinking about how sort of everyday life in the city has changed because of the pandemic, you know, thinking about public health. Uh, if you look at the press about the city from the pandemic to the homeless, to mental health issues, to crime. It's sort of this microcosm of all the issues that we face across the country. You know, Black Lives Matter, police reform, all of it's happening in the, the boroughs of New York City and, and, and in particular, you know, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Bronx. And to see how it's unfolding and the lessons that, you know, we still need to learn as a country, uh, I, I've, I've been really focused on it looking at de Blasio politics, uh, how our politicians are dealing with the sort of confluence of events, you know, all intersecting in the same city. Uh, so that's, that's what I've been focused on lately. It's so hard not to be, but like in a good way, I feel like we finally kind of have like the bandwidth or not the, or the, the time and awareness of being able to focus on like why can't I go to the restaurant? And then what does that mean? And what is that kind of domino effect into for, it's been really interesting, especially in the art world, we've talked about it a lot. You know, what does it mean for the Met to be closed? Who's affected? What's, what are those, you know, the spiraling out, um, you know, negative or positive, no positive, but all negative <laughs> effects that these kind of things have, especially on our more vulnerable communities. It's a lot, but it's good. I'm glad we're confronting it, and I'm glad that you're reading about it. Um, 
where can our listeners find you on the interwebs if they were so inclined? Sure. So if, if they and want- also, by the way, guys, don't hit him up for legal advice unless you really like are willing to pay for it. Like, I don't. Can know I ask you terminology though? It's just That's like, hi, what does this mean? It's like I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I try to apply my the good wife knowledge again, which I've now failed again. <laughs> Only for you, Erica. Only for you. <laughs> Erica gets the friends and family discount. So sad. But like, he's available if you can like afford, you know. But just. Just don't don't bother him in that way. But it'd be good to know what you're up to and stuff because I know that you've done, you were in the Gagosian Quarterly doing an interview and stuff. So it's it's good to keep up with what what Luke's doing. Yeah. So you, you can find me on the firm website, which is www.quinnemanuel.com. I like also, that. Shoot me an email, Luke Nickus, L-U-K-E-N-I-K-A-S at quinnemanuel.com, or just Google me easier Luke Nickus. just google me he doesn't even look like a lawyer by the way i was no. so confused he's in a t-shirt and i'm like what's i'm so confused i'm fairly sure i'm speaking to a lawyer today he shows up and i'm like huh i'm so confused right now just not on it today he's very so approachable i want to know since alexis has been asking these like super high level questions and i'm going to continue on with my super low level questions wonderful here. compliment um when you watch law shows do you watch law tv shows and like movies it's wow sometimes. that's a hesitant sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> do, do you scream at the television set and be like that's wrong no, no, you know why? No, he because screams, I object. That's what he screams. <laughs> most of them get it completely wrong from the procedure standpoint. But for me, law has never really been about procedure. It's never been about, you know, what the specific rules are and the order of operations. For me, it's all there. It's all important. You have to know it. But for me, the law is really about who's right and who's wrong. You know, it's the morality play. It's, it is about telling a compelling story. And from the lawyer's standpoint, it's about figuring out how to move the chess pieces. And how can I put together a story that's going to move people, whether it's on paper or you know, whether it's you know, in a courtroom, if I can just have a normal conversation and tell you why you should listen to me and trust me and why my client's right and the other side's wrong. Like that's really what law is about. And that's one thing actually that a lot of TV shows get right. They get all the procedure wrong, all the objections wrong. Like the way the world works does not look like you see it on TV, but the way lawyers need to think about their cases in telling a story is how, you know, how Hollywood approaches it. And so when I'm watching a law, law, you know, whether it's, you know, law and order, or whether it was years and years ago, you know, the practice, uh, whatever it is, like if I see someone telling a really moving, compelling story, like that, that's interesting to me. So that's really you, and then you shed a tear and you're just like, yes, this is why I started practicing law. That's right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're all crying at the good closing arguments. Um, thank you so much for your time. And yeah. it's been a wonderful delight, very educational in like all of the best ways. And yes, thank you so much for uh, humoring me and answering my very low-level questions. No, this is we have to get these things. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.